everyone, and welcome to the Lunch Lunch Mile podcast. We have our friend Dr. Miles Nichols back on, and he was on our last podcast talking about the gut brain and the vagus nerve. And today he's going to be teaching us more about mold illness and about Lyme disease. So, Dr. Miles, give everyone a little brief explanation about who you are, what you do, um, in case they missed the last episode. Absolutely. So I am a functional medicine doctor in Colorado, and I work with complex chronic illnesses like Lyme disease, mold illness. Also, I have certification in breath coaching that focuses on Buteco method breathing, as well as uh, I'm going through a Wim Hof certification. And so extensive breath work, as well as focusing on a lot of lab testing for root causes with natural treatments whenever possible, but also peptides, medications if needed for complex chronic issues. And Lyme and mold illness are two big ones that our clinic specializes in, but also gut issues. We talked gut brain last time as a connection that's really fascinating with interesting research. So gut issues, thyroid issues, and autoimmune issues are also things that we specialize in and work with in our clinic. That's awesome. Actually, um, I made my dad listen to the gut brain episode and he really liked oh, yeah. it. So for Father's Day, he got some lactobacillus rhamnosus. That nice. was the right one, right? That is, yep. Okay, cool, yep. cool. Yep. Um, all right, well, let's jump in. So we had talked last time about um, talking about how some types of sinus infections and some types of sinusitis can be related to mold. So give yeah. us the dirty details. Yeah. So when people are exposed to mold, which is more people than you'd realize, about one in two American homes is water damaged, believe it or not. One in two, that's 50%. Many schools, churches, and workplaces are also water damaged and doesn't have to be visible mold. It can be water damage that occurred a long time ago and got fixed, but there can still be mold spore in the drywall or the vapor barrier or the wood that can release spores into the air and those spores get breathed in and have something called mycotoxins on the spores that certain kinds of mold, most people know about black mold. They know black mold is bad. Black mold is called stachybotrys and it produces a toxin called trichosethine. Trichosethine is so toxic that it's been researched for use in biologic warfare. It really disrupts the brain, the neurology. It can really change the way, it can induce symptoms that are neurological, headaches, migraines, brain fog, but even seizures and severe neurologic issues as well. And so many people are exposed to mold who never know or realize they're exposed. And Mold gets missed so much of the time because two people or three people can live in the same home and only one is getting ill. And so no one assumes that the home has anything to do with that one person getting ill, but it's only about 24% of the population, about one in four, 
who have a genetic predisposition for their immune system not to be able to recognize the toxin from mold and get rid of it appropriately. Mm. That one in four will little by little over time, if that gene is expressing, they'll accumulate the toxin in their body as they're breathing it in. And if it crosses a certain threshold, a certain level of toxicity in the body, there can be what's called a chronic inflammatory response syndrome or CIRS or SIRS for short, which essentially is a way of saying their whole body becomes inflamed. They may have symptoms of joint pain, fatigue. They may have neurologic issues like brain fog, headaches, or more severe neurologic issues, anxiety, insomnia is very common, and many other symptoms that are this multi-system inflammation that's happening as a result of these toxins. Not only does chronic inflammation happen in the body, but in the sinuses, Mm. the inflammation happens. And we also see in about 95% of people who are affected by mold illness have an infection in the sinuses. The shorthand is Marcon's for that infection. It's a it's a staph infection that's multiple antibiotic resistant. And that's the Marcon's is short for multiple antibiotic resistant coagulative negative staph. It's a mouthful. So we just call it Marcon's for short. And we very frequently see Marcon's in people with mold illness. But remember, a lot of people are going to have mold illness and not know that they have mold illness. We also see Marcon's with a lot of people struggling with cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, dementia, memory issues. It's been linked to amyloid plaque on the brain, which is one of the mechanisms behind how people develop Alzheimer's and dementia over time. So this sinus issue is something that is much, much, much more common than I would have ever thought before our clinic started testing a lot of people for it. And I find it a lot. So people who get sinus infections frequently, that's a sign this could be going on irrespective of anything else. People who have chronic inflammation in the sinuses, people who have stuffy sinuses and it's hard to get the sinuses clear, which then can impact sleep, then can impact things like sleep apnea can be worse. And if the nose is blocked, treatments for sleep apnea can have a hard time being effective. And so Blocking the nose and chronic sinusitis is often connected with this Marcon's, this infection in the sinuses. And this infection in the sinuses is present in almost everyone who has mold illness, but it's also present in some people who don't have mold illness as well. So it can really play a role in helping to make it so a person unfortunately can't nose breathe as easily and that can lead to mouth breathing. That can lead to all the things you know so well, the jaw deformation and so much else. That's interesting. Cause like when I was a kid, we got, I mean, down, down in the basement was me and my sister and our bedroom was in the basement. There was a window, everything looked fine. It smelled fine. No big deal, but we got sick a lot. And my sister, she would sleep 
all the time. Even though she's like a preteen teenager, she needed a lot of sleep. And she's very grumpy and everything. Um, when we were a little bit older, we had already been sleeping in that room for years. Uh, they had found black mold and it had to be totally retreated. The, the walls had to be redone, the flooring, all that stuff. So yeah. I can see that because I, I did get sick a lot when I was a kid. Also, major mouth breather. So chicken or the egg, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that that moving out of a moldy environment for at least this 24% of the population isn't enough to get rid of the toxin from the body. So for a majority of the population, for about 76%, about three quarters of the population, they move out of a moldy environment and their body's able to get rid of the toxins pretty readily, pretty easily, and they feel better. But for about 24% of the population, unfortunately, they hold on to the toxin and it doesn't, just by the body alone, it's not processed and gotten rid of very effectively. And so we see people sometimes 10 years post mold exposure who are still chronically inflamed and ill. And then it gets so far disconnected that, that almost no one is suspecting it and testing for it. And there's more awareness coming out these days, but it's still largely underappreciated because it's only a subfraction of the population. And so people miss the fact that it could be mold and people think that mold needs to be visible, but basements are notorious for water damage without visible mold, without smells. Addicts can have water damage very easily. And, and again, one in two homes have some degree of water damage, even when people don't realize it. Hmm. So if you wanted to find out if your house had mold, what would you even do? Yeah, that's a good question. So the most simple way to get a screen on the home is to get a test called a Hertzme or an ERMI test. H-E-R-T-S-M-I or E-R-M-I. And it's a dust sample where you collect dust and send it into a lab and the lab analyzes it for mold spores. Now there is some nuance to interpreting that test. There are some tools online that can help you with interpreting that test, but that's a good test, much, much, much better than a Petri dish test from the hardware store is not a good mold test. Air samples are better, but not perfect. Dust samples that are Hertzme or Ermi samples are really the best. Um, they're not inexpensive, but they're not crazy expensive either. In the $150 to $350 range, you can get a good dust sample that can really give you a sense if the home has a level of mold that would be problematic. Speaking of dust, that's a major um, allergen for a lot of people. We say like dust, dander, dairy, the top three allergens. So I guess if you had a dusty home, that could probably increase your sinusitis and your congestion as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and people do have mold allergies too, but that's different than mold illness. Mold illness really is accumulation of the toxin. 
mold allergies are a histamine response that can lead to inflammation also of the sinuses, but in a different way. That's uh, an immune system allergic reaction that you might have runny nose and sneezing and itching different than mold illness where you're chronically inflamed all over the body and multi-system issues, joint issues, sleep issues, anxiety, neurologic issues, brain fog. Not everyone has all of those symptoms. Some people only have one or two of those symptoms, but if you have chronic unresolved joint pain that's not explained for other purposes, you didn't injure yourself and you're a little young for having wear and tear be a huge issue for you. Or if you're having a lot of trouble with insomnia and having a hard time sleeping, you're waking easily through the night, mold and Lyme is another, or other chronic infections, is another thing that can cause um, both of these. If you have chronic fatigue and your thyroid is normal and you've checked some other basic things, you're, you're, you have normal B12 levels, normal thyroid levels, then you might start to look to mold illness, chronic infections as being a cause for chronic fatigue. So for people who are obviously when you're dealing with chronic fatigue, sleep apnea can be a player, but if you're trying, if you're already screen for sleep apnea, you've already done some myofunctional therapy, you've already done some CPAP, or you've done a dental device to help resolve that cause, and you're still chronically fatigued, then really be important to look at mold illness and a chronic inflammatory response, and also Lyme disease as possible culprits for why that might be happening. So is the mold illness more in the nose or do people have gut problems as well? Gut problems are very common as well. It's whole body. So it affects the entire body and multiple organ systems because the toxins, you breathe them in through the nose, but then they get, they're small enough to actually get through the lungs into the bloodstream and they circulate in the bloodstream and then they can deposit in tissue, they can deposit in the brain, they can deposit in organs. And so you're gonna see gut dysfunction also absolutely in that population. I don't like thinking about that, Miles. (laughs) I don't want to think about little things in my blood. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, the and with gut stuff, what, what we see a lot of times is the people who have a gut issue and they try to treat it and it seems to get better, but then it comes back. And then they try and treat it again and it seems to get a little better, but then it comes back and they try and treat it again. It doesn't even really seem to get that much better. And they're just in this battle of repeated treatments without response. Even if they've had, we get people, they've gone to other functional medicine practitioners, they've gotten diagnosed with small intestine bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, or they've found a parasite or something and they've treated it, but then it, it recurs, it comes back and then they treat it and it recurs again and they treat it and it recurs again that's a sign there might be mold illness, there might be Lyme disease, because both of these we see lead to chronic recurrent infections in the body. And that sinus infection in the nose, if you think about it, you swallow and it goes into the gut and you can reinfect the gut multiple times if you don't treat the sinuses. So sometimes 
postnatal drip. Yeah, exactly. Swallowing all that gunk. Yeah, I could see that. So what do you do to treat mold illness? Or like, who do you go to see for that? Yeah, so for mold illness, your regular conventional doctor probably isn't going to have much of a sense for what that is or how to treat it. Uh, Some progressive doctors might know a little bit about mold allergy. Most of them don't know a lot about mold toxin illness and chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So you want to find someone who understands CIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome and mold illness. And the treatment typically involves lab testing to make sure that that is a root cause for what's going on. So we'll test to look for the genetic that 24% of people who have that genetic, we can actually do a blood test to see if you have that genetic. And then we can also look for inflammatory markers that relate to mold exposure. And we can look at different things in the blood and the urine that will tell us about if mold illness is a root cause and will also give us tracking markers to track as we're doing treatment. For treatment, we generally want to bind the toxins in the gut. A lot of people have heard of activated charcoal. They might have heard of chlorella. These are binders that bind toxins in the gut and take them out. So often we'll use binders as part of treatment, but we also need some things to help toxins get out of the cells. And we also need things to help the liver make bile and put toxins into the bile, and then binders to bind toxin in the gut and get it out of the body. And then once the toxin is sufficiently out of the body, people start to feel much better. But there's still another phase of treatment, which is to then restore the repair the damage that's been done and restore function to the hormone system to the brain. Because there's brain damage that happens. We, we see on a, a certain kind of an MRI called a neuroquant MRI, we see damage to certain areas of the brain that's associated with mold exposure. And then other areas of the brain that's associated with Lyme disease and, and Lyme exposure. And so the second phase of treatment, we're, repair, we're repairing the damage that's been done to the brain. And we're also restoring hormone function because in addition to sleep problems and anxiety and fatigue and chronic pain, we also see a lot of issues with hormone function in these individuals who are exposed to mold toxin illness. And so we want to restore the brain signaling to produce hormones like thyroid hormones and adrenal hormones and reproductive hormones. And so you'll see a lot of people, there are a lot of people who probably have had mold illness or Lyme disease or both who have been walking around with it and they're getting treatments to mask some of the symptoms. They're getting hormone replacement therapy to deal with some of the hormonal issues that are happening. And they're getting thyroid replacement to deal with some of the hormone issues that have been happening. And maybe they have a sleep medication to try to get sleep to deal with the insomnia that's happening. And maybe they're dealing with some medications for fibromyalgia because of the chronic pain that's been happening, that's been diagnosed as fibromyalgia in some of these individuals. And there are so many people, so many people who are walking around with 
chronic inflammation, don't know why, have been going to doctors, they've maybe gotten some diagnoses, but the diagnoses are things like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, autoimmune issues, insomnia, anxiety, depression. And unfortunately, they're missing the boat. And, and I was in this class myself because I had chronic fatigue in my early 20s. And I was really struggling to even get through school. And it took a long time and some good mentors. I had to go to all sorts of practitioners. And the first doctor I went to really looked at my blood. They said, nothing's wrong. Maybe you're depressed. And I'm so glad that I didn't believe that and go that route because it turns out that I had a thyroid issue, an autoimmune issue, a multoxin issue, and multiple chronic infections. It took me a long time to figure all of that out and to resolve all of that. But I am so glad that I didn't resign to just taking an antidepressant to try to deal with life. And because now I feel much, much better and I don't have to take an antidepressant or any psychiatric medications. And I feel great. And that's because I've been able to identify these root causes and help to reverse them. And what kind of practitioners did you see that actually helped you figure that out? Yeah, I went through the gamut. I went to naturopathic doctors, acupuncturists, chiropractors, integrative MDs, functional medicine doctors, and and many of them helped a little bit. Um, but it took for me personally, I because I was going through medical training, I was able to find a mentor who helped in functional medicine, who helped to, to identify the thyroid problem. And then I had to learn on my own a little bit about the mold and Lyme stuff. My, my wife, she's also, she's a naturopathic doctor and, and she struggled with Lyme and mold illness as well. And so we had to figure it out for ourselves, unfortunately, and took way too long and a lot of money to figure it out because we went to so many different people who didn't know what was going on. Luckily, these days, there are some more practitioners who know what's going on. Generally, a functional medicine practitioner who is Lyme literate or mold illness uh, savvy, who, who really is specializing in dealing with Lyme illness and or mold is going to be someone who can really test for these things and understand and treat these things. You should make a directory on your website because it sounds like it's not very common. <laughs> It's not, it's not. And uh, we get a lot of demand from people to work on these issues and actually all of, from all over the country and we can work virtually. So we get people from all over the country calling because they can't find someone local to where they're at who specializes in these issues. Bigger cities, you can find people, but in smaller areas, it can be harder to find a clinic that specializes in Lyme and mold wondering that since our last podcast actually I was like how would he do some of these testing virtually yeah well so we don't do the test virtually but we send a requisition form and find a blood draw center close to where a person's at for blood and then for things like SIBO breath testing and stool testing we send kits to the person they can do at home and then they send them off to the lab and then the lab sends our clinic the results and then we go over the results virtually in a telemedicine appointment with the client and then 
we're able to put together a treatment plan and that treatment plan generally involves a lot of herbs and nutraceuticals and vitamins, minerals, sometimes nutrition changes and lifestyle changes. We're able to ship out what the person needs to take and then guide and coach them through the changes in their diet and lifestyle. That's fascinating. I really want my dad to see you for a consult, actually. I think it would help him a lot. Wonderful. Um, so I had one question before we jump into Lyme. Yeah. What about parasites? Because I had heard that some kids will hit their head on things if they have parasites, which to be fair, they could also do because of like sensory or primitive reflexes that are retained. But what do you know about parasites? Yeah, so we do comprehensive stool testing that looks for several intestinal parasites. And then we also do testing for Lyme and co-infections. One of the co-infections is called Babesia, and that's actually a malaria-like parasite that becomes systemic and can be a chronic infection. And so we test for gut parasites as well as systemic parasites that can become a chronic infection. And so we do see parasites in more people than I think a lot of people might assume in the United States, but it's certainly not, not super common to find gut parasites, but we do find them in a reasonable number of people. And we have found them in children on multiple occasions. And then of course, if people travel internationally and get ill overseas, then it's very frequent that we'll find parasites, even sometimes years after someone comes back if they didn't get it treated. Yikes. And had you heard about like where kids will like bang their head on stuff if they have parasites? Yeah, that can happen. And often parasite symptoms can be cyclical too because they shed. They they have a cycle of laying eggs and then hatching. And, and that's why you also don't see them in the stool. In every stool test uh, was the old story of trying to find um, uh, uh, typhoid in uh, someone who was spreading typhoid around, they did multiple stool tests and didn't find it. Eventually they, they found it in the same person because it sheds in cycles. So also cycling symptoms, symptoms that can get worse at night and that are correlated with strong sugar and carbohydrate cravings can sometimes be yeast, sometimes be parasites. So if people have symptoms that occur every few days, that can be a sign as well. Hmm. Interesting. Um, why don't we talk about Lyme? Because I know little to nothing about Lyme, just throwing it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Lyme disease is the fastest growing chronic infection. Um, uh, or the, the fastest growing infectious disease, period. It's just becoming more and more of an issue. There's, there's, more than 30,000 every year diagnosed Lyme cases, and it's probably less than 10% of Lyme that gets diagnosed, which means probably over 300,000 people per year contracting it. A study just came out looking at California beaches, and they found enormous numbers of ticks carrying Lyme disease right in the brush next to the beach, next to the ocean in California. I don't like so, that. <laughs> so it, 
it used to be thought that you had to be on the East Coast to get exposure to Lyme. Lyme, Connecticut is where the, the name for the disease came from. And so we know that if you're in if you're in Connecticut, if you're in Boston, if you're on the East Coast, you're going to have a bunch of Lyme present there. But it's all over the country. Isn't there a conspiracy theory that Lyme was created? Yes, there is. Absolutely. There's lots of conspiracy theories in the Lyme world, but um, absolutely uh, uh, where Lyme Connecticut is, there's a, a testing facility close to there. So there's been rumors of it being somehow engineered there. And um, that's hard to understand if that's a possibility, but, um, but yes, absolutely. And, and we know that, that Lyme is really something that, that you, you don't have to have the bullseye rash. The, the classic understanding of what a lot of people hear is, oh, if you're on the East Coast and you get bit by a tick and the tick is on you for 48 hours and then you get a bullseye rash, then maybe you have Lyme. I wish it were that simple. But unfortunately, again, we've, we have Lyme all the way to the West Coast and tick attachment does not have to be a full 48 hours and you do not have to have a bullseye rash. Many people become exposed to Lyme and never know that they had it. And some people function just fine and other people get ill years later and it's really hard for practitioners to uncover that it's Lyme. It often becomes a very, very late diagnosis that it's a cause for people because it can occur so many years ago or it can occur for people that don't remember a tick bite and it even can transmit through the placenta from mother to child. So I was about to ask you because I had a patient once who had Lyme and her kids had Lyme and she had told me that she had passed it on to them and I had no idea how that works. So thank you for explaining and solving the mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And so Lyme is a controversial one in the conventional medical world. They say Lyme really is only an acute disease and, and chronic. It doesn't really exist. And then you get this whole body of practitioners like myself who are Lyme literate who say, actually, I think it does persist for years afterwards and we see a lot of people with chronic ongoing issues some of the classic symptoms with Lyme are stiff neck joint pain that can rotate and change some joints feel swollen and inflamed some days and not other days it can be associated with chronic fatigue very very common and then brain fog and dementia-like symptoms, having early onset memory issues, can't remember where I put the keys, can't remember where this is, where that is, trying to find a word or recall something. It can come also with a very short fuse, like on the stress response side, where someone who used to be able to tolerate stress just fine, at some point, it's a change. I just had a patient I was talking to today about 22 years old all of a sudden she's anxious and she's got a short fuse and she's so angry and she's raging and she is finding herself throwing things at the wall she never used to do that 
And that was after a summer in Vermont, sleeping outside all the time. And so she, what I theorize happened there is she got uh, exposed to Lyme. And then there's an autoimmune process whereby it can damage the brain and receptors in the brain for dopamine. And then we can have what's called an autoimmune neuropsychiatric symptom or syndrome onset where people become anxious, become stressed out, start to feel panicked, start to feel depressed, start to feel irritable all the time, start to have little things bother them that didn't used to bother them, feel like they can't manage their mood in the way that they used to be able to. And unfortunately, a lot of these people get thrown on psychiatric medications and they never investigate an underlying root cause, even though it's very well documented in research. We know in children, there's something called PANDAS, which is a pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome that onsets after an infection. And then there's something called PANS. And PANS is also a pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome where kids can transform overnight to become angry and anxious where their personality changes and it's after an infection. And it's been identified that Lyme can do this. Bartonella, which is a co-infection for Lyme can do this and multoxin exposure can do this. Certain strains of, of mono and Epstein-Barr can also do this. What is Bartonella? Bartonella is what's called a co-infection. It's another tick-borne infection that can transmit from ticks to humans. Some people who get Lyme also get Bartonella at the same time. Some people don't get Lyme, but they get Bartonella. And Bartonella is a different bacteria, but it also causes some similar symptoms, some different. A lot of body pain, heaviness, sometimes burning feet, really heavy limbs. And there are many other symptoms on the neuropsychiatric anxiety, depression, irritability, mood dysregulation, and rage. So Bartonella is one that can be also transmitted from ticks. Often when we're screening for Lyme and co-infections, we'll do a test that looks not just for Lyme, but it looks for Bartonella, Babesia, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, many, many different infections that are all possibly transmitted from ticks. Babesia is the one that I mentioned earlier that's a parasite. It's a malaria-like parasite. And this one, Babesia, is associated with a lot of temperature dysregulation. People can have a really hard time regulating their temperature. Some women who are not going through menopause can start to get hot flashes, night sweats, and it seems really weird because this infection is causing it. And people can have a really hard time staying warm enough or they can get too hot super easily. Their temperature can be all over the place. And that temperature dysregulation plus mood issues are also really common with Babesia infection can come from that parasite, which also can transmit through ticks. Bartonella, which I had, we had just talked about, also can transmit through cat scratch. A lot of cats have Bartonella. And so if you've heard of cat scratch fever, yeah. that's, that's Bartonella. So, so a lot of cats, about half, 50%-ish of cats carry Bartonella and can transmit as well. So you don't even have to have a tick bite um, and other insects can carry it. So 
you know, many people have had spider bites and mosquito bites. And, and so some of these chronic infections can transmit through multiple different vectors. It's not only ticks, they're, they're generally known as tick-borne infections, but it's not only ticks. Um, what, what is Lyme? Is it a virus? Is it a parasite? Is it a bacteria? It is a bacteria that's very different than a lot of other bacteria. So it's a bacteria called a spirochete. And spirochete talks about- Early the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, Lyme has some really unique and weird characteristics about it. It has different forms. So it can be in its spiral form, or it can be in what's called a round body form. In the round body form, it's less susceptible to antimicrobial herbs and antibiotics. So oftentimes when people are trying to use antimicrobials and antibiotics, it pushes Lyme out of the spiral form into the round body form to protect itself and to survive and to be able to then later come back out. And maybe later is when the person gets stressed or the person has another exposure to toxins or something else happens and then that infection, they have what's called a flare, which is that infection becomes more active again. And Lyme has been shown to have something called persister cells. And these persister cells carry an original blueprint of bacteria, of bacterial DNA, where they, they're very hard to kill. And so these persister cells can live for long periods in the body. And this is part of why Lyme is so difficult to eradicate. It and, and tends to sometimes come back later on, even after someone's done treatment and, and had treatment. So a lot of people in the Lyme world right now are trying to figure out how do we not only get rid of the spiral form, how do we get rid of the round body form and how do we deal with the persister cells? It's a very, very complex infection. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors think, oh, let's just give doxycycline antibiotic for two weeks and that's enough. And unfortunately, it generally is not enough and it pushes the spiral form into the round body form. The studies on doxycycline show that it does kill off a lot of the spiral form, but it increases the round body form. It doesn't deal with the round body form. And we see later in life, some autoimmune conditions get stimulated by that round body form. And so it's, it's unfortunate that you really want a practitioner who knows what they're doing with, with Lyme disease. If you suspect Lyme to really get a thorough, because the testing is also so difficult because if you go to a conventional doctor and you ask for a Lyme test, they do this basic ELISA screening that almost always shows negative, even for people who have Lyme. It's, it's really unfortunate. Maybe in the very acute phases of Lyme, if you get the right timing, you might show positive on that. But so many people show negative on that. And then we do a more functional specialty lab that specializes in doing very specific antibody testing for Lyme and co-infections. And then we find Lyme present where people even had one or two tests for Lyme before and it showed negative. So Lyme is this whole world where testing is not great, 
conventional doctors don't like it because it's very, very difficult to understand and to research. And there's a lot of controversy and the treatment is often mishandled. Um, antibiotics really are not necessary for Lyme, but often people wind up on free guys for six months to a year sometimes, which destroys the gut. And it sometimes helps with Lyme, but um, it's in our, in my clinical experience, it, it isn't generally necessary. We can deal with Lyme without doing such damage to the gut in many cases. So some people respond well to the multiple antibiotic approach, but it's not necessary. And some people respond poorly to that approach and can really do well with an herbal based approach that works on Lyme plus the immune system and some peptides and certain other strategies of treatment. That's wild. So Lyme is bacteria based, but it causes almost like an autoimmune disease sort of presentation. Is that a good explanation? It can. And, and so for example, in some cases of MS, which is a severe autoimmune condition, on autopsy, they've gone into the brain and seen a lot of spirochetes in the brain and, and realized that, oh, this might have been caused by Lyme. And so um, it's, there, there's, there are links that are, it's new days in terms of the research on this stuff. So it's not well researched, but there, there are links that are starting to become more clear between Lyme infections and autoimmune diseases. So we do often see with certain autoimmune diseases, the presence of Lyme or other chronic co-infections like Babesia or Bartonella that, that we'll see that are dysregulating the immune system. And then the immune system is expressing in an autoimmune picture. That's wild. Lyme is a nasty, it's a nasty little bugger. Yeah, I do want to... I'm scared make, that it's in the yeah. West Coast too. I thought I was safe. <laughs> I do want to make sure people have some hope though, because it's easy to get lost in how horrible it can be, how difficult it is to treat the different forms. It, it is a very complex issue that can be difficult to treat. It usually takes a year or two with really experienced practitioner to treat Lyme effectively. But I will say that that we see people who aren't functioning, who are really in a bad way, who are fatigued, having trouble getting out of bed, or who really have a lot of insomnia and anxiety, fibromyalgia, multiple autoimmune diseases. Um, we see people make enormous recoveries. We see people functioning really well again, having energy again. It's not a death sentence. Um, that Actually, the number one cause of death with Lyme is unfortunately suicide. Be because of the, the neuropsychiatric element of it is really severe. It's really, it can be, people can really feel not like themselves. But after treatment, we often will see people, their mood is much better. They're feeling like themselves again, and they're able to function, live their lives. Maybe they have to be a little more cautious in terms of diet and lifestyle, but everyone should really be doing some of that stuff anyway. So it's, it's, uh, not a life sentence and people can recover. And I want to make sure people understand that. I have personal yeah. experience. I had um, Bartonella and Babesia both. And, and I 
have been able to to really recover from that. And my wife also, um, she had uh, Lyme disease and and has been able to recover. So so we and many many patients in the clinic as well. Yeah, give us a, a hopeful story. One person with uh, with mold toxicity, happy story, yeah. and then uh, one with Lyme. Yeah, so we had a woman come in. And she was in her 20s and she was on five medications at the time. She had such severe endometriosis, which is an issue in the tissue in the the vaginal area gets growing on the outside of the uterus and becomes really, really painful. It was so painful for her that she was getting injections to induce menopause essentially. And because it was so painful to have a period for her. Plus, she had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. She had body pain all over. And she was overweight despite a lot of dieting and trying to do diet and lifestyle things. She was still quite overweight and struggling with weight. And she was on an antidepressant medication. We found mold illness as a big issue for her when we ran her labs. And we had her, she, she moved out of the place she was in because she was in some exposure, but that wasn't enough. And we did treatment. We bound the toxins and we went through the treatment process. We did a dietary plan for her. We got her doing some lifestyle things. We had her taking things that would bind the toxin and get rid of it. We did the things to restore the brain function and hormones. She dropped 30 pounds. She got off her fibromyalgia medication. She got off her antidepressant medication. She got off the Lupron injections to induce menopause. She was able to have cycles that weren't painful anymore. She had her mood regulated and she felt so empowered that she knew what was causing it for her. She knew what she needed to do in order to stay well because we helped her understand how to live life with mold illness to where you can understand when you're walking into places and, and how not to get in that situation again. And so we gave her those tools and she felt so empowered after that treatment. And so it was a brilliant and amazing transformation. That's really cool. I just feel like you're describing one of my family members actually. Mm, yeah. <laughs> All right. And give us a happy story about Lyme. Yeah, so we had a woman who she had had such severe neurologic changes. She she wound up in the hospital many, many times and she was, was seeing neurologists and specialists to try to figure things out. And she spent after insurance over $100,000 trying to figure out what was going on, why she would wake up, her vision would be blurry, Sometimes she'd have hallucinations. She was really struggling to maintain her job. And for a while, she had to quit her job, which was her source of income. She was struggling to get through the day. She really had a lot of fatigue on top of the weird neurologic stuff. She couldn't think straight, concentrate. She couldn't focus. And all she really got in her conventional medical testing was some labels of diagnoses like ADHD and we don't really know what's wrong with you and 
you know, go home, we can't do anything for you. And maybe go to a psychiatrist and try to get some medication for depression or anxiety. That's really what she got in over $100,000 of her own money to try to figure this out after what insurance would pay for. She came into our office and we did a comprehensive set of lab work, which um, was under $2,000. And we got a diagnosis uh, within four weeks from when she came in uh, of Lyme disease. And she was able to start on treatment and she was able to, within about six months or so, she was able to start to work again. Um, it, she wasn't all better. It took her longer, but then after about a year, she got married. She actually sent us a, a postcard from, with a picture from her wedding that, that said, I, I would not have been able to get married without you because I, I wouldn't have been able to even have a wedding. I wouldn't have been able to be around the people. I wouldn't have been able to travel. And so thank you so much. And so she was able to get married. She was able to get back to work, to her job. And, and she was able to start to feel like herself again, especially after the, the two-year mark is when she really felt like she got a big part of her health back. And she also, um, with treatment, we not only did the treatment directly for Lyme and the co-infections, but we also did uh, some, some brain retraining work, which can be really important when, you, when your life has really fallen apart. There's a lot of stress triggers and people can get into this. They're stressed and triggered all the time by so many things. And so there's also a process of retraining the mind to begin to desensitize some of those triggers. And that was really important for her as well in part of her treatment was to help desensitize those triggers. And now she's doing really wonderfully. And did the brain fog and hallucination stuff go away? Yeah. Yeah. And she's able to work, to focus, to concentrate. She doesn't have the blurry vision. She doesn't have any of the hallucinations anymore. And so she's really functioning quite well. That's pretty amazing, actually, because I've had many patients that have had to like take years off of work because they're just so bogged down by Lyme. It seems awful. Yeah, yeah, it can be. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we'll just send them to you. <laughs> Medicine with heart. You do virtual. You're located in Lakewood, Colorado. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, which okay. is just a little bit west of Denver. Mm -hmm. um, just a, your, real close to Denver. What's your website? Medicinewithheart.com is the clinic website. And then we also train practitioners who want to learn to treat Lyme and mold and they want to learn to do functional medicine. So anyone who's, you know, in the medical realm, who's treating patients who wants to learn about functional medicine, we have an institute as well, mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com. What's your Instagram? Medicine with heart, I believe. Um, we have medicine W heart for one of them that didn't fit all the letters. And I can't remember if that's Instagram or Twitter, but I think medicine with heart, but if it's not, then medicine W heart. Okay. It's probably, I think your Instagram is medicine with heart though. I, I think it is. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, 
at first I felt like it was the grim reaper of uh, <laughs> microbes, but now I'm feeling a little bit more hopeful and all else feels people can just reach out to you if they need help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's hope for people who are struggling with mystery illnesses where you've gotten a diagnosis and, you know, diagnoses like fibromyalgia is sort of like saying you have pain all over your body and we can't figure out why. That is really what that diagnosis is saying. Just like irritable bowel syndrome is saying you have gut problems and we really don't know why. And so if you have any of those kinds of diagnoses or autoimmune issues, I, I really just encourage you to, 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 to don't just wrote, accept that this is a lifetime thing and there's nothing you can do about it um, other than, you know, take something to, to manage the symptoms. Know that there, there are things, I'm not saying you can cure these things. I'm not trying to use any of those controversial words. I just know that I've seen people with autoimmune issues who we've seen antibodies in the blood, like ANA antibody positive, and then after treatment, it's negative. So you could argue that might be remission or, but, but people, you can feel better. You can have your blood markers improve and you can feel like yourself again. If you don't feel like yourself, don't accept that you need to just take an antidepressant. I mean, if you need one, take one, but don't accept that that's the only option for you and, and do have some hope that there is a possibility and, and just get curious and you don't need to seek it through my clinic. If you want to wonderful, but, but uh, you can read our blog at our website. That's absolutely free medicinewithheart.com uh, slash blog. And you can see a lot of articles about information and, and there are many clinics that can potentially help. So please do just keep, keep working on yourself. If you're feeling like you're, you're lost in the medical side of things, there's, there's hope for you. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much for being with us today. And Megan will be with us next time. She just had something come up today. All right. Thank you guys. You're so welcome. Take care.